when we breed mice in the lab, they're housed in standard um, mouse cages and, in fact, are treated just like lab mice. Um, and they do very well um, in these environments. But for some of our experiments, like um, those where we're trying to assay differences in behavior, um, we have special um, environments that we put them in to measure that behavior. So one uh, example is when we look at burrowing behavior, mice are moved into these what we refer to as sort of glorified uh, sandboxes. So these huge sandboxes that contain about a ton and a half of dirt, and the mice are released in those boxes and allowed to um, dig any type of burrow they want. It's a lot of soil. Moving a ton and a half of uh, dirt <laughs> is no small task. And we have about 10 of these um, boxes. So there's a lot of muscle that went behind that. Welcome to the Glock Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. As you heard at the top of the show, our guest today is Dr. Hopi Hoekstra. Dr. Hoekstra is a professor at Harvard who just had a paper published in the journal Nature and who works with small mouse-like mammals of the genus Paramiscus. That's right, mouse-like. They're small, they look like mice, many of them even have mouse in their common names, but they aren't mice. Here, let's let Dr. Hoekstra explain. So our lab works with um, a group of mice that are generally called deer mice. They're in the genus Paramiscus. They're called mice because they're small, but they're actually um, fairly distantly related from uh, lab mice and rats. We consider lab mice and lab rats separated by 10 million years. Paramiscus as a genus are separated from lab mice and lab rats from a, by about 20 million years. But the diversity within the group um, uh, is much less well understood, um, but the two species that we focus on the most, um, called the deer mouse and the old field mouse, are probably separated by about 100,000 years. So that um, divergence is much less. Um, but the reason we study deer mice in part is because they're the most abundant mammal in North America, and they're found in almost all habitats. And so there's a lot of variation in these mice. And they've also been studied as sort of a model organism in terms of their ecology uh, since the early 1900s. So we have a lot of information about um, variation in coat color and behavior and so forth that was gathered by these classic natural historians uh, 100 years ago. So paramiscus are an incredibly common and widespread genus found in North America that can easily be confused with the more standard lab mouse, Mus musculus. But make no mistake, paramiscus are different from more typical lab mice. And there are good and bad aspects brought on by those differences. On the good side, the use of genus paramiscus species allow researchers like Dr. Hoekstra to ask a number of questions that you can't ask using normal lab mice. Different species of paramiscus have different color coats, different lengths of tails, and other different physical traits. They also have different behaviors from mating habits to the amount they climb or the amount they burrow. On the flip side, there are also some downsides to using a non-standard model organism. 
So a lot of the tools from the beginning when we first started working on these mice in about 2003 um, were really built up from scratch. So it's not just our lab, it's a number of labs that are um, together building up the genetic and genomic resources to really um, delve into the molecular details of uh, these mice and how they adapt to their environment. Dr. Hoekstra referred to an effort to build up the genetic and genomic resources available for work with pyromiscus. For people like me, who work with mus musculus, we tend to take for granted the availability of genome sequences, of SNFs and haplotype maps, of conditional knockouts, and so on. But for people who work with pyromiscus, these tools weren't, and in some cases aren't, available. Fortunately for Dr. Hoekstra's work, and really because of the work she and others have put in, that is now changing. The genome sequence is um, on its way. So right now, the paramiscus maniculatus, or the, the deer mouse, which is the most common of the paramiscus mice, is the one that's being sequenced at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, we have efforts now uh, underway to sequence the old field mouse. Um, and then there are um, two, two other species that are going to have light um, sequencing, which is uh, the California mouse, which is another highly uh, monogamous mouse, and Paramiscus leucopus is the fourth one. The presence in the not-too-distant future of completed genome sequences isn't the only resource Dr. Hoekstra has available. Dr. Hoekstra also has access to a wide variety of specimens. At Harvard, we have a Museum of Comparative Zoology, which is a natural history museum. And uh, in there, we have, uh, in the mammal department, we have over 80,000 mammals. And we do have a large collection of paramiscus mice uh, in this collection. And we've actually taken advantage of these mice uh, to look at variation in a number of um, traits, like coat color or tail length, for example. And by doing so, we can look at temporal changes in these traits, so traits that um, these mice had 100 years ago to see if they've changed over time. Our lab involves not only these museum um, involves the research on not only these museum specimens, but um, we do a lot of field work. Um, so we collect mice from the field. We do experiments with these mice in their natural habitats, and then we also um, are able to bring them into the lab where we can test uh, different traits under controlled environmental conditions. Um, so it allows us to tease apart uh, environmental effects from genetic effects. The controlled environmental conditions Dr. Hoekstra mentioned at the end of that last clip include the ton-and-a-half boxes she referred to as glorified sandboxes at the top of the show. I love that detail. That's a <laughs> lot of sand. Yes. And we'll get to those boxes in just a couple minutes because those boxes and the burrowing that Dr. Hoekstra's mice do in those boxes are central to a paper Dr. Hoekstra just had published in the journal Nature. You know, it occurs to me that those boxes are kind of like cat heaven. You know, it's like a giant litter box filled with mice. mice. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, as we mentioned before, different species of paramiscus have different traits. Burrowing is one of those traits that varies with species. It's not the only trait that does, however, nor is it the only trait that Dr. Hoekstra is working on. There are a number of traits that vary, and our lab has um, initially really focused on co co-color variation, where there's a really nice pattern between the color of the dorsal coat or the, the back of the mouse and the substrate in which it lives. So I mentioned these mice that live on the coast of Florida and these beautiful white sand beaches. It's like walking on hills of granulated sugar. It's absolutely beautiful. And not surprisingly, maybe the mice are actually um, almost um, completely white as well. And you can imagine that being a white mouse running around on white sand, you're much more camouflaged from visually hunting predators. 
Whereas if you go to some of our field sites where we have maybe a more typical dark colored soil, uh, the mice tend to be um, have coats that are that same color. There's this really nice uh, correlation. Studies of coat color, or coloration in general, have a very long history. We've all heard stories about black versus white moths during England's Industrial Revolution. We've all heard tales about how Arctic hares are white in winter to match a snowy background, and brownish in summer to match a more thawed environment. And just a few minutes ago, Dr. Hoekstra pointed out that, a hundred years ago, naturalists were cataloging the variability in coat color of different species of paramiscus. Even Mendel, when you think about it, was looking at coat color, even if only in peace. <laughs> um, no, that, that's kind of a stretch for well, us. Well, okay, it, it, yeah, maybe it is. But it's nonetheless true that coat color is something that early naturalists really honed in on. Dr. Hoekstra explained for us how her lab studies variation in physical attributes like coat color and puts that to genetic uses. Let's say we're we're out in Florida and we're looking at these beach mice that have these beautiful white coats so they blend into their environment. Um, they originally colonized these beaches and sand dune islands off the coast of Florida uh, as dark mice colonized those islands. And so we sort of have the dark ancestor and this new or derived light uh, coat color. And using genetic tools, we've estimated that this um, change occurred just a few thousand years ago, about 3,000 years ago. Um, and so what we're interested in are the precise DNA base pair changes that make these beach mice light in color. So what we're able to do is bring the beach mice and their dark ancestors from central Florida into the lab um, where they're in controlled conditions. They are fed the same food. They live in the same environment. Um, so that we're really focusing on the genetic component, not any environmental noise. And we can breed them together. And when we breed them together, we make a hybrid that has one chromosome from each of those parents. And just by looking at the color of that hybrid, we can already say something about the genetics. So, for example, they tend to have a fully pigmented face like the dark parent, um, but they have only a partial tail stripe like the light parent. And so what that means is both dominant and recessive alleles contribute to that color difference. Um, but really what we're trying to do, what we do next is take those hybrids and we cross them together. And now what happens is the genes get shuffled in that second generation. And in that second generation, we're able to measure their coat color and genotype them at lots of markers throughout the genome and simply ask is there a genetic correlation between the markers they have from the parents, the dark parent and the light parent, and their coat color. And so we're, what we're looking for are, for example, regions of the genome where the mice that have no tail stripe all have the, that region, a particular region of the genome from the light parent, and all the mice in those hybrid individuals uh, that have, do have a tail stripe have the dark part of the um, genome from that dark parent. And that region of the genome likely contains a gene that contributes to um, differences in uh, striping of the tail. And then we hone in and try to find the gene. And when we find the gene, that's sort of where the fun starts, where we can ask, how does that gene work to change tail striping? And how did changes in that gene evolve in wild populations? That answer was a textbook description of genome-wide association studies, but it also had a lot packed into it. So let's review. Dr. Hoekstra has two species of paramiscus separated by just a few thousand years of evolution. One species lives on a white sand beach and has evolved a light coat color, and the other species lives in an area with a lot of dirt instead of sand, and these guys are a little bit darker colored. These mice also differ by face pigmentation and the presence or absence of a tail stripe, among other characteristics. Dr. Hoekstra mates these mice together, 
one dark mouse, and one light mouse. All the offspring of this cross will have one of each pair of chromosomes from the dark parent and one of each pair of chromosomes from the light parent. If a trait, like face pigmentation, is present in this generation, then that trait is very likely a dominant trait. What happens next is the really important part. Mice from that first generation are mated with one another. The average genomic contribution from dark and light parents in that second generation remains the same as in the previous generation. On average, half the genetic material, half of the alleles are from the dark parent, and half are from the light parent. However, the distribution of the genetic material from the dark and light parents has been changed. Where in the first generation, all locations in the genome, all loci, had one allele from both parents, now, in the second generation, because of recombination, some loci have alleles only from the light parent, some loci have alleles only from the dark parent, and some still from both parents. Dr. Hoekstra then assesses alleles at loci throughout the genome and looks for a statistically significant correlation between the physical characteristic in question and the genetic distribution of alleles. With a lot more work, eventually Dr. Hoekstra has or will be able to identify genes involved in pigmentation, coat coloration, and tail striping. To a non-scientist, this might seem kind of trivial. I mean, who cares why a mouse has a light coat or a dark coat, right? But really, this is incredibly important. Experiments like these are how we identify genes involved in any number of cellular or molecular processes. While knowing what makes a mouse's coat light may not seem important, identification of the genes involved in this process, through this and similar strategies, provides a fantastic tool for beginning to understand and investigate any number of processes involved in development, function, and disease. Additionally, physical characteristics like coat color or tail striping are not the only characteristics that can be investigated in this manner. So we had been studying morphological traits, um, traits like coat color and tail length for a long time. And um, these mice, as I mentioned, had been studied by natural historians. And one of the traits that they um, mentioned that differed was behavior, and in particular, burrowing behavior. Um, Behavior is harder to study than morphological traits for the simple reason that it's harder to measure a behavior. So measuring the color of a mouse or the length of its tail is pretty straightforward, but how do you measure you know, differences in a, a behavioral trait? Uh, much more complicated. But burrowing, um, by studying burrowing, we had sort of this trick of not measuring the actual mouse doing the digging, but instead measuring the morphological output of that behavior, and that is the burrow architecture. So what we do when we study burrowing is we're able to let the mouse burrow, and then we make a cast of that burrow, and we treat that like we would treat the limb of that mouse. We can measure the length and the angles and uh, the depth and the size, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, this sort of trick allowed us to be more confident or bold in going after genes involved in behavior because we knew we could measure it in a very straightforward way. And in terms of how we went about measuring burrowing, well, let me step back and say that um, this work really rests uh, on this natural history studies done in the early 1920s by a fellow named Francis Sumner, who is associated with the Natural History Museum, who literally spent his career, the first part of his career, driving around the U.S., catching mice and measuring all sorts of traits. And what he noticed was that these mice, um, the old field mice, dig burrows that are pretty complex, and they're very stereotyped. So the burrows are um, long. Uh, they have a long entrance tunnel. They have a big nest chamber. And then they have a secondary tunnel that radiates up near the surface but doesn't penetrate the surface. And he found that throughout their range, they made the same type of burrow. 
Um, and uh, so um, this was this really neat observation and pretty unique. Um, a lot of organisms burrow, but very few build a burrow that's so stereotyped in size and shape. Then you have to fast forward to the um, early 80s when a fellow by the name of Wallace Dawson um, was interested in these burrows as well. And what he did was he was able to bring the mice into the lab and showed that they recapitulated this burrowing behavior um, in the lab laboratory environment. And using very small sample size um, was able to at least make the hint that the underlying genetics may be trackable and may be simple. And so when we came into the picture, we're now armed with molecular tools, with genomics and molecular markers. We wanted to see if we could try to find the genes that controlled this burrowing, uh, complex burrowing behavior. So like cut color, burrowing is a trait that differs between two species of paramiscus and is therefore amenable to analysis similar to that Dr. Hoekstra described a few minutes ago. There's a big difference, though, in that burrowing is not a physical characteristic, but a behavioral one. Right, and that can be a huge difference. Fortunately, as Dr. Hoekstra pointed out, burrowing produces a physical output. As she put it on a podcast with the journal Nature, burrows are the physical manifestation of a behavior. If you measure the size of a burrow, you have a quantifiable phenotype you can investigate, just like tail stripes or coat colors. Here's Dr. Hoekstra with more details on her burrowing experiments and her nature paper. This um, complex burrow is unique to old field mice, whereas um, most species of paramiscus build relatively short burrows. And in fact, the sister species, the one that's most closely related to these old field mice, build very small burrows, just a few centimeters um, down, and they have a little dinky nest chamber. And what's great about this these two closely related species building very different burrows is that um, we can cross them in the lab and they still produce offspring. So just like we did with coat color where you take a light mouse and a dark mouse and you cross them to look at how color segregates in these offspring, we do the same thing with um, these different burrowing behaviors. So we took a mouse that builds this big complex burrow and a mouse that builds this little dinky burrow and you look at what the hybrid does. And quite to our surprise, the hybrid builds a complex burrow, just like the um, parent, like one of the parents. And what this means is that the gene or genes that control this burrowing behavior are largely dominant. Then we take those hybrid mice and we back cross them to the simple burrowing parent or species. Um, and then again, we get these second generation mice that have different combinations of alleles from the simple burrowing parent and from the complex burrowing parent, and we ask um, what types of burrows do these, these mice make. And what was particularly interesting to us about these hybrids is that you could recapitulate the behaviors or the burrows of the pure species. So you get the little dinky burrow, you get the big complex burrow, but you'd also get burrows that were long but didn't have an escape tunnel or short and did have an escape tunnel. And what that meant to us is that those two traits, the length of the entrance tunnel and the presence or absence of an escape hatch, um, were separable. Um, and that meant they were controlled by different genes. This was a big surprise to us because we may have, in the beginning, naively thought, well, you have genes that control the length of the burrow. And so, um, you know, the escape tunnel would just be um, an extension of the the entrance tunnel, but instead it's a completely sort of separate behavioral module or, or component of the burrow.
To recap, old field mice build long burrows complete with escape tunnels. Conversely, most other species of paramiscus, including deer mice, a closely related sister species, build short burrows with no escape tunnels. And when you cross old field mice and deer mice together, individuals in the first generation dig long burrows, suggesting long burrows are a dominant trait. But when you cross this first generation together and scramble the genetic contributions from the parental strains, you see a mix of burrows, some long, some short, some with escape tunnels, and some without. Dr. Hoekstra's lab conducted a genome-wide association screen to identify genes involved in producing these differences. Here's what they found. So one of the big surprises from our study was that um, when we looked in the genome and asked which regions of the genome contribute to these differences in burrowing behavior, we found three regions that were associated with the entrance tunnel length. And what was particularly interesting is that each one of them contributed about three centimeters. So in other words, if you took one gene, um, gene region from the complex burrowing parent and put it in the simple burrowing parent, you would get a mouse that built a burrow that was now three centimeters longer than if it didn't have that region. And then you add the, the next region in, and it's three centimeters longer, and the next region in, and you get about nine to ten centimeters longer. And, and then a completely different region of the genome uh, controlled whether or not they produced um, an escape tunnel. So you can think of this as sort of um, light switches, um, you know, let's say four different light switches, and you can, if you turn on one, um, you get three centimeters longer. You turn on another, you get six centimeters longer. If you turn on the other one, you get another three centimeters. Um, and then there was a switch for presence or absence of escape tunnel. Um, and the idea that this complex behavior may be controlled by just a few genetic regions and maybe just a few genes was quite surprising to us. So Dr. Hoekstra identified three genetic regions involved in producing an entrance tunnel and a fourth completely distinct region involved in producing an escape tunnel. And it's kind of amazing that each of the three regions implicated in entrance tunnel burrowing contributed equally to the length of the burrow. Yeah, it's, it's totally crazy. It, it makes you wonder what sort of genetic predisposition could underlie that behavior. Dr. Hoekstra and her lab have wondered the exact same thing. And they're looking at the results of their study and using that to inform their thinking. Here's Dr. Hoekstra. Now we're at the point where we have these genetic regions, and the big goal is to go into those regions and try to find the, the precise genes, and in fact, the precise DNA base pair changes that control these differences in burrow length. Um, and that's a big challenge, and so that's something that we're, we're working on now. We don't have the genes yet, but um, we're sort of at the fun point where we can at least hypothesize or hand wave or make up stories about what genes we think may be involved. And, you know, there's no clear candidates, let's say, from what we know from humans, uh, for example, of what may make uh, a mouse dig a longer burrow. But um, our leading hypothesis at the moment is that there may be differences in motivation. Um, and in fact, some of our favorite candidates are those that are involved in addictive behavior. And I have to say, when you watch these mice, um, the complex burrowing species, you put it into one of our sandboxes, and they just start digging. And it really does look like they enjoy digging. And I know that, you know, this is not a, a sort of scientific statement, but simply one that is sort of unavoidable. When you watch these mice, they just, um, they just sort of go for it. Um, and so we'll see what the genetics tells us, but, um, you know, we wouldn't be surprised if we end up finding genes that are involved in either addictive behavior or motivational behavior um, that are involved in this tunnel building. 
Contained within that clip was a great example of why this work matters. Like with coat color, the uninitiated might assume studying burrowing isn't something that could impact their lives. But as Dr. Hoekstra pointed out, her work could shed light on addiction and the dopaminergic system, two things very important to humans as well as rodents. Here's Dr. Hoekstra's take on the broader relevance of her work. In some ways, the nice thing about studying burrowing is that there's not a um, clear um, human counterpart to this, you know, so we we tend not to anthropomorphize as much as I think if we're working on um, other behaviors. Um, but I do think there's um, potential, at least, to um, inform us about um, human behavioral variation. So, um, for example, if it does turn out that motivation or addiction is involved, you know, being able to identify a gene and characterize genetic changes in those genes that may have an effect on at least a mouse addictive or motivational behavior certainly is going to be relevant for um, thinking about human behavior, thinking about genetic changes that may be associated with variation in human behavior. That's definitely true. It's important to remember that these genome-wide association screens are a beginning rather than an ending of Dr. Hoekstra's work. Even once specific genes and specific base pair changes are identified, there's still a lot of work to be done. And Dr. Hoekstra has a lot of work either planned or already in progress. Certainly, um, once we have identified the best candidate genes, then there's a whole bunch of um, fun experiments um, we can do. I think the ultimate experiment we'd love to do is to make a simple burrower, uh, take a simple burrowing species, add in our candidate genes and see if it'll build a complex burrow. Um, I think that to find the genes, we're taking this genetic approach, um, but we're complementing that with um, pharmacological experiments where we're able to give them different drugs to see how that affects um, their burrowing behavior, which may lead to um, pathways or that may be involved. For example, we think the dopamine pathway may be an important component of the story. And we're also doing um, transcriptomics, or in other words, we're looking at differences in gene expression in certain regions of the brain that we think are important for um, burrowing behavior. And so looking at the simple burrower versus the complex burrowing, asking are different genes expressed in their brains as they burrow, and that is another complementary way of trying to narrow down to the, the actual genetic changes involved. When we were talking to Dr. Hoekstra, one question kept coming up in my mind. She works on behaviors that, as she puts it, may be relevant for thinking about human behavior. That could open up a big can of worms. <laughs> right, and it's not necessarily a can of worms for Dr. Hoekstra. She's aware of both the relevance and limitations of her work. Instead, it's a can of worms for the pop science and media types, like us, who could potentially misrepresent her work. But hopefully won't. Well, but that's unfortunately <laughs> true. It's easy to focus on the maximum upside of a story rather than the limitations. Mm -hmm. And it's also easy to drive readers and page views by making extraordinary claims. For example, if you're a pop science site, it might be tempting to say that scientists have found life in space rather than just asteroids bearing organic molecules. Dr. Hoekstra isn't doing anything like that, but the burrowing project may intersect with research on addiction and other projects in her lab that are investigating the genetic basis in paramiscus of polygamy and monogamy. These are big hot-button topics. We asked Dr. Hoekstra if she was worried about the media possibly misrepresenting her work. Not if, I think not if we're careful in how we explain um, our science. And I think that's always a big challenge for scientists to be able to convey um, not only the excitement of our work, but also sort of the caveats or boundaries of how that work can be extended to, um, 
to humans, for example. One of the, I think, best parts of my job as a curator is that I um, get to help uh, design or um, scientifically advise on um, public exhibits in our museum. Um, so a lot of the the displays at Harvard's museum really center around um, active research being done by the faculty in the department. Um, we've also have a number of displays that are sort of rotating displays. So recently we have um, a whole new exhibit called The Language of Color, and it's all about how color is made, used, and perceived by animals in the natural world. And so I got to be a part of um, uh, designing the material that was to go on display. So it's a, a lot of fun, and I think it's really the responsibility of us as scientists to um, not only do research, but be able to explain to the general public what we're doing and why it's important. That is our show for today, and Joanna, I have to say I was really impressed by Dr. Hoekstra. Me too. I actually kind of wish, rather than an interview request, I had emailed her per my CV and questions about postdoc opportunities. <laughs> you liked her work that much, huh? I did. Genetics and sociobiology are what led me to my first job in science. When I was an undergrad, I heard a lecture that discussed similar work by a scientist at my undergrad institution. I found out when that professor had office hours and camped out by his door, hoping for a chance to volunteer in his lab. <laughs> so you have experience in a sociobiology lab, then? No. <laughs> I sat by the professor's door for about two hours before someone told me he was on sabbatical prior to moving his lab to a different country. Oh. But I got a great job meeting his replacement and a great lab experience doing human genetics. <laughs> well, that's great for us. It was something. <laughs> We'd like to thank Dr. Hoekstra for taking the time to join us and talk about her work and her paper in the journal Nature. That paper, called Discrete Genetic Modules Are Responsible for Complex Burrow Evolution in Paramiscus Mice, by Weber, Peterson, and Hoekstra, appeared in the January 17th issue of Nature. We'd also like to thank all the people who tuned in to listen to us today. Yay! <laughs> For updates alerting you to new episodes of the Grok Science Show, you can friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You can also find this episode in hundreds of previously aired episodes of the Grok Science Show on iTunes, archive.org, the Public Radio Exchange, and, of course, our own homepage, groks.net. For the Grok Science Show and for Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Crystal Love, I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Thank you for listening.